You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here. So, let me tell you, sir, back when I was in college, which was about 1,500 years ago, uh, I had a class with this guy whose name is also Bob. For the purposes of our story, he will be known as the other Bob, so there's no confusion. But anyway, the other Bob took me aside before class one night, and he said, Bob, check this out. And he takes out this engagement ring, and I'm like, Bob, we barely know each other. And uh, anyway, no, he says, I'm gonna ask my girl to marry me. And I said, other Bob, you've only been dating for six weeks. And he says, I know, but she's the one. I'm sure of it. Now, being the born encourager that I am, I said, dude, mark my words. This is not going to end well. So that night, I'm sitting in class, and all I could think about was the other Bob and how he's going to ask this girl to marry him who they basically just met. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking... Carrie and I have been dating for almost three years. And what am I waiting for to ask her to marry me? And so I I, I don't know. You know, I thought that maybe something monumental had to happen, like being old enough to shave. Uh, So, but I'm like, you know, 21 or uh, almost 22. And I thought, but I mean, I I don't know. I thought something monumental had to happen. And, And then once I saw that the other Bob bought a ring, I realized they'll sell these to just about anybody. And so, so I get a second job, um, and I save up so I could buy, like, buy the nicest cubic zirconia that I could afford. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. My wife doesn't like that joke. Um, and so, but no, I bought the ring. And then uh, I bought the ring from a guy who's, I, that, whose dad I went to high school. Oh, I'm sorry. I went to buy off the guy whose son I went to high school with. And so I'm asking him, and I'm like, yeah, I've never done this before. The internet didn't exist when I'm doing this, or barely existed. You know, it was only for government use at that time. And I'm like, you know, how do I ask my wife to marry, how do I ask this girl to marry me? And so then the people that worked there, because, you know, when you're going to make a life decision, the best thing to ask is total strangers. And I'm like, you know, what, what should I, how should I, and then they gave me a few suggestions which were awful, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing any of those. And then one of the girls that worked there said, look, we have, this, um, we have this box that looks like a rose. And so maybe what you do is you buy a dozen roses, and then you put this one in the middle with the ring inside. And I'm like, I like the sound of that. So I go out, and uh, I buy two dozen roses, and then I put this ring rose ring box in the middle of it and I put the engagement ring inside now I thought at the time it would be a nice thing for us to get engaged in front of her family and so I thought that would be a nice thing like a family moment now anyway lots to be said about that but anyway for the sake of time we'll skip that so I get there and I give her the 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 bouquet of roses and she says oh Bob that's so sweet let me go put them in a vase and I'm like wait Check them all out. And she's like, oh, they're very nice. I put them in a vase. I'm like, what? One is different 
than all the others. And she's like, nope. And I'm like, yes, it is! The one in the middle is different. And so she's like, and I'm, so then I, I'm like, look, this one is different. And I open it, and it has, the, it op- the, the box opens up, and it's the engagement ring. I get down on one knee, and I say, Carrie, I love you with all of my heart. Will you marry me? Wherever that was coming from, thank you. Now, let me exp- now let me tell you what my wife said once I said that. She said nothing. Now, guys, if you've done this, you know. And ladies, let me just tell you something: the appropriate time to respond is within five to seven seconds. Like you'd be like, oh, "What? Of course, you know," and do whatever you want. But. This was, she said nothing for quite some time to the point where it got a little awkward. And I'm, I don't know. She never told me what she was thinking about. I'm thinking she's scrolling through the names of all the other options that she had, all these other suitors that it's like, is this what it's come down to? Is this bozo? And so anyway, but after what seemed like 30 to 45 minutes, it probably wasn't that long, but that's what it felt like. And then I said, I said a sentence I never thought that I was going to have to say when I asked my wife to marry me. And I said, Carrie, I'm going to need an answer. <laughs> and, and so then after that subtle encouragement, she said, um, yeah. <laughs> Not, yes, of course, I love you too. Oh my God. No. Not, I can't believe I get all of this to myself. (laughs) Which I would have accepted as an affirmative. I got, um, yeah. And you know, we've been married for almost 25 years, so maybe, um, yeah, is all you need. So, it's not. But I'll take it. So now I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this because I really do have this, this firm belief that there are moments, moments that define you. Moments where you come face to face with a challenge, face to face with an opportunity, face to face with a truth. And it's what we do with those things that define us. And listen, if we were honest, we would admit that it wasn't months or years or decades. It was moments that changed us. It's the moment when we walk down the aisle and that, with him or her, and that set off a chain of events that led us to where we are now, good or bad. It's the decision to stick it out when things got tough in school and career or relationship that have made all the difference. And here's the thing. You remember the moment. Everybody does. Everybody remembers the moment when we made the decision, when we took the risk, whatever it was that we said, this is going to be it, and we're just going for it, and we're not going to give up. And you know what happened? That changed everything. But here's the other thing, is that we tend to think of moments that define us as kind of just the triumphant moments, the moments that we tried something and everything worked out, that we asked and she said yes, that we did something and everything kind of fell into place. But do you know that the opposite is also true? Do you know that painful moments, difficult scenarios, adverse seasons, those are the things that define us as well? And see, here's the challenge that we have is that sometimes we let the painful moments of life 
limit what God can do in our lives. And my friends, that is a mistake. But in reality, your past is simply the backdrop to the power of God in your life and his ability to transform your life from everything it was to everything that it can be. Now, if I can stay on my engagement ring scenario, if you've ever gone to buy an engagement ring, then here's what you know, is that the first thing that the jeweler does when he's going to take out all the diamonds is that he brings out this black velvet cloth, right? And then he lays the diamonds. That, that becomes the backdrop. And when you see the backdrop, when the diamond gets laid on the backdrop, it makes the diamond shine even brighter. And my friends, that's what I want to spend some time talking about today and that I hope that we never forget that whatever bad has happened in your life isn't something to simply forget like it ever happened. It's something to share, to highlight how good God has been in your life. And my friends, that is the heart behind what we're going to spend some time talking about today. So, If you're just joining us or you were here last week, then you know that we are in a brand new series uh, of teachings that we're calling Old School. Here at Calvary, we've been working our way through this book in the New Testament that's called 1 Timothy. Now, let me give you a little bit of background in case you weren't here last week or you were and you weren't paying attention, just to fill you in. Timothy was Paul's protege. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. And so Paul had sent Timothy, who was in his early 30s, to pastor a church in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It was very diverse socially, it was very diverse ethnically, and it was very diverse religiously. And while the culture was very confused and constantly changing about what was true and what was good and all that, Paul's message was pretty old school. He was talking about, what he's going to talk about in this book are going to be simple, unchanging truths that become like latitude and longitude in our lives, that we can simply chart the course of our lives on them. And and throughout the course of this book, the thing that Paul is telling Timothy to do is to fight the good fight. Because as Christians, we don't fight like other people fight, right? Other people sling mud and get personal and make everyone who doesn't agree with them their enemy, but that's not the Jesus way. What Christians do is that we love people that we disagree with. We stand for what's true and show them that it's right by the way that we live and the grace by which we answer. And one of the tools that's in our tool belt is our past. And it doesn't matter what your past was before coming to know Jesus and how imperfect it was. Everybody's was imperfect. But that past and the transformation that Jesus brought, which led to a totally different type of life in the present and a totally different future, is something that we all desire. And that's what Paul is going to do here. What he's going to do is he's going to take a page out of his past, and he's going to show us who he used to be. He's going to show us what he once was and what God did and how that same power is available to each of us. So if you're here, listen, and you're wishing things were different, you're in the perfect place because you're going to see literally how the sausage gets made on how God changes a person, how God transforms someone in the present and makes their future something that's totally different. So we're going to start in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy in verse 12, and here's what we read. It says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that I want to talk about. The first is this, is that your past is part of your future. Now, if you read these words, one of the things that you're going to find is these two sets of three. Two sets of three. One set talking about his past and then one set talking about his present. And the first, he talks about the present. And you see this tremendous gratitude for, that he has for three things, that the Lord Jesus enabled him, trusted him, and placed him in ministry. The, the word enabled him is literally the word um, endoname in Greek, which means to empower. But when we talk about power, it's not like girl power. That's not what he's talking about. Like, you know, just like the power of us working together. He's talking about this. The, this word, dynami, is literally a word that means dynamite. It is a word that is explosive. And he's saying, this is what God did. He put in me, he infused in me these gifts that now I'm being able to use. And so because I have these gifts and I was faithful because that's what he says next, that I was not only enabled or empowered, but that he counted me faithful because I was trustworthy. And then he put me or literally appointed me into ministry. Because listen, it's one thing to be gifted and the gifting comes from God. But it's another thing entirely to show up on time because you can have the greatest gifts in the world, but if you don't use them and be faithful with the gifts that you've been given, you recognize, listen, that the gifts were not given for you. They're given for a reason beyond yourself. And when you're faithful with the gifts that God has given you, listen, God opens up opportunities for you that you never dreamed possible. You know that there are, and listen, for more than 20 years being a pastor, I've seen this. I've seen people who are so tremendously gifted and they never experience God doing great things in their lives because they won't be faithful with the gifts that they've been given. And then I've seen people who are half as gifted as those guys be used tremendously by God because, listen, the future is made up by the people who show up. And here's, can I tell you, one of the reasons I think people, you know, they just, they never experience God doing great things in their lives and, and is because, well, let's be honest, um, nobody wants humble beginnings, right? We want something big and prestigious and all of this, but one of the challenges is that we won't be faithful with the gifts is that no one wants humble beginnings. Now, I've been playing guitar for like 30 years. You know what it takes to be a good guitar player? You may want to write this down. It takes being a bad one for a good while because when you start, man, it's horrible, and I remember when I first started playing, I'd playing in my bedroom when I was in high school. My grandmother would come in and give me her opinions on my playing. And she's like, this sounds horrible. No one is ever going to listen to this. And I remember when, when I joined a band, I got a record deal, and I told her, and she's like, it's not always that. She's like, that's not true. She's like, I've heard you play. There's no way. And so, and so, mentiroso. And, uh, and so she had this whole thing about why I wasn't telling the truth. But that's the problem, is that the only way you get to be a good is by being like bad at it for a while. And so, and this is the, this, right, this is, the book of Zechariah says it this way, do not despise small beginnings. But I love the second part, the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. I love that. God rejoices when we get started, not just when it's, you know, we can do all the things that uh, impress people. Um, I had no idea that I had any kind of teaching ability. I'm a musician. I've been a musician since I was about 15 years old. 
And so I thought when I became a Christian that I was just going to become a worship leader. And I thought that's where my whole life was headed, was becoming a worship leader. So after becoming a Christian, um, I changed my major to music because I was going to get a... uh, I was going to get a music degree and become a worship leader. And then it, and it was my wife who recognized that I had a teaching gift before I even noticed it in myself. Because she said, you're always teaching people. And it's a weird thing. I didn't even know anything at the time. And I remember, and she was telling me, she's like, remember we were sitting in the new believers class. This is for people that have been Christians for like 30 minutes. You know, and so I'm sitting in a new believers class. And I spent the whole time teaching this lady that was sitting next to me. Thankfully, she asked the three questions I knew the answer to. Anything else, I was, I was, I, it was out of sorts, but I, I knew the three, the three questions. And so, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean it's easy. And that's one of the challenges is that you've got to take the spark, the, the, right? The, this little thing that God gives you, and then you've got to fan it into flame. Because I had only spoken one time. Some of you have been in Calvary for every once in a while. I tell the story when I want to make fun of myself. But um, I had only spoken publicly one time in my life um, before I became a Christian. And that was at my, my older sister's wedding when I was nine years old. So this was 1982. So do the math. All right. Yeah, I'm old. So, and I was supposed to read from Genesis 2 at this wedding. Now, once again, I did not grow up in a Christian home. And uh, they're like, you're going to read from Genesis 2. We didn't even own a Bible in our house. So the only, uh, like, well, where is it? Well, when we get to the church, you just grab a Bible. Like, literally. Like, all right, we're really planning for this. And so I'm sitting in the church, and they had one of those, um, they had one of those uh, in the backs of the pews, and they had one of those, like, you know, help yourself complimentary Bibles. So I'm like, well, here we go. So I grab one, and then I walk up, and I didn't know much about the Bible, but I knew that Genesis was the first one. And so I open a Genesis 2, and they tell me where to read, and it was a total disaster. I got lost in the middle of it. In the middle of reading, I'm like, ugh. And I, that was my, that, I, and by the way, that's on, my, because my dad paid for the service to be videoed, because, you know, we need to see that. Um, and so people, my family still watches that to this day. And they're like, you remember when you read? It's so funny. It's like, and then people wonder why I have low self-esteem. And uh, so, and, but I, so, but then I, I felt God calling me into ministry and uh, to teach. And so I decided to uh, leave college and go to Bible college and get a theology degree. And so I signed up uh, and there, Tuesday night was a big night at the school and that was where the, everybody got, the whole student body got together, and they would do student devotions at the beginning of the night. So around 7 o'clock, everybody would get together, they'd do student devotions, and then um, there'd be class going on the rest of the evening. So I signed up, my first semester, I signed up to, uh, to give a student devotion. And I knew about a month in advance what I was going to teach on. Psalm 37, verse 4, that was my text, first text I ever taught on. And by the way, Psalm 37, verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart, which by the way is a wonderful promise in the Psalms for us. And so, I'm, I, and I had already had it mapped out. I was going to pray, I was going to read the verse, I was going to explain the verse, I was going to tell this story that happened in my life in relation to that verse. I was going to encourage the students. I was going to pray, and then I was going to sit back down. And I only had 10 minutes, so that's a lot to cover in just 10 minutes. Now you come here, I can't even say hi within, in the first 10 minutes. But uh, so anyway, so the day comes, and I am so nervous. So, but anyway, I get there, and I walk up, and I pray. I read the text. I explain the text told the story about my life and this, about me and my dad. And, um, and then I told that story and then I explained it. And then I prayed 
And then I sat down and I looked up and I still had six minutes left on the clock. And it was awful. And then um, there was this little break before classes started because everybody was kind of like going to their different classes. And I walked, the, I walked back and um, the dean of the school was there and, uh, and I was like, hey, um, and, and I just, I thought it was a total disaster. And, um, and he, you know, he, I, I walked up to him and I'm like, hey. And he's like, how do you feel? And I'm like, I just don't think it went well. And he puts his hand on my shoulder. I'll never forget what he said to me. And he said, Bob, I promise you, it can only get better. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I didn't even realize he was lightly trolling me. Uh, but, the <laughs> but you know what what's, I just I love is that um, the next semester, he, he sought me out and um, he called me. I was actually at work. And he said, hey, I'm putting down all the student devotions for this semester and I want you, I want you to try again. And I said, okay, but can you put me for the end? And he said, yeah, no problem. You're on next week. And, uh, and I'm, what? And so anyway, like my whole life stopped at that moment. But um, it was the next, that, that next week, that, the, the following semester, um, I gave the devotion. It literally, it brought the house down. I mean, it, was, it went so well. And, and here's the thing. And, and he was so, he's standing in the back so happy. And, uh, you know, anyway, we had a great exchange after. But here's the point is that if you think you are the source of your gift, it produces arrogance. When you realize the gift is from God, it produces tremendous gratitude. You see, when you realize God has gifted you, and now there's all these wonderful opportunities because you've been faithful with the gift God has given you, that's the diamond. And now let's examine the backdrop, if we can, where now Paul says, Look, remember he says the positive three? This is the thing I'm so grateful for, is that God has enabled me, called me faithful, put me in ministry. But he says... Although previously I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Uh, Literally, the word means he was violently proud. You see, Paul wasn't born a Christian. In fact, Paul's name originally wasn't even Paul. Paul was his nickname. It's a a name that means little. Uh, Paul's given name is Saul. Um, And Saul was from an area uh, called Tarsus. And he was a Jewish leader, and Saul hated Christians. In fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, when this young man named Stephen, the the religious leaders are looking at all all that the Christians are doing, and they start asking questions. This young man named Stephen stands up, and he gives these religious leaders a history of the Jewish nation. He gives them this history, and then he explains to them how Jesus is the Messiah and how they're not listening to what God is doing. They are so enraged by what he's sharing that they grab him and they literally stone him to death. Now, I want you to think about that. I mean, just what kind of visceral reaction you would have, no matter who it is, of watching a group of people grab rocks and pelt someone to death with stones. It's such uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's such a heinous thing that it's been said that in the history of Israel, in the entire history of Israel, that it only happened seven times. That, that it was such, such a rare occurrence. And so, but I want you to listen to what happens when Stephen is being stoned to death. Look at what it says in the book of Acts. It says, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him and witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now Saul was consenting to his death. They, he saw 
these leaders pelting Stephen, killing him with rocks, and he's like, I'm for that. Give, I, I give you my vote on, on that. Now listen, Paul's description is not an exaggeration that he was a blasphemer, that he was a persecutor, that he was an insolent man. When Paul is on trial in Jerusalem in Acts 26 after becoming a Christian, he's standing before a guy, his name is King Agrippa. He's an overseer in that region. And he shares his actions before becoming a Christian. Look at what he says in Acts 26. He says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I also did in Jerusalem, many, in many of the saints, I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and, com- and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. My friends, Paul was brilliant and he was passionate and he was gifted and he used all of those gifts for all of the wrong reasons. And then he had this experience with Jesus, with the risen Jesus, and everything changed. He took all of his passion and all of his brains and all of his gifts and started using them for the kingdom of God. And my point is this. Paul did not erase his past or act like his past never happened. Instead, his past became the backdrop for his future and that they became, look, this is part, this is part of my testimony of who I used to be and that I'm this work in progress of who it is that I've become. And listen, it became his story that no one is out of the reach of God's grace. In fact, I love what happened in Paul's con- uh, when Paul was converted. Paul was on the way to Damascus, which is a city uh, north of Israel. In, um, in uh, anyway, just north of Israel, and so he, he's on his way there. He has this um, incredible interaction with G, with the risen Jesus, and becomes a Christian. And then it says that the people were confused. That it said they were amazed, which literally means that they were confused. They were bewitched. I mean, they thought that this was some kind of magic trick, essentially. Like, because he started, he wanted to go to church. And they're like, we're not telling you where our church is. We know you're going to, like, arrest everybody. Then you're going to pull, like, an undercover boss on us. And then you're going to get everybody arrested. And so he's like, no, 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 I want to go to church. Anyway, look what happened. This is in Acts chapter 9, right after Paul's converted. It says, then all who heard were amazed. Once again, they thought it was a trick. And they said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name, that is Jesus, in Jerusalem? And he has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Here's my point, my friends, and that is don't run from your past. Don't forget your past. You are not defined by your past, but God can use your past if you let him. Listen, if you've struggled with addiction, you know who the best person to hear from is? It's someone who used to struggle and now has found victory. If your marriage is on the rocks, you know who the best person to hear from is someone whose marriage used to be on the rocks and now they've found victory as they've watched God do something great in their lives. Because this mess of a past might be the very thing that God wants to use to be your message that impacts the lives of people who need hope. Well, Paul goes on. He says that he was a blasphemer, a violent man, a persecutor, but then he says this. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me, Jesus Christ, might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor, glory forever and ever. And if you pause there and give me your attention, if your past is part of your future, then the second thing I want to tell you is that your defeats are part of your victories. You see, I want you to see the progression in Paul's life as he as it's revealed in his writings. The, the more Paul gets to know Jesus and the more Paul walks with Jesus and the more Paul, that God radically transforms Paul, the more the way he thinks of himself changes. In the beginning, early in Paul's ministry, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and we studied this a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians, he says this, right here. Here it comes. There it is. All right. He says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul looked at his life and he's like, look, the apostles, they walked with Jesus for these years. They've been, they've been actively reaching people. I was a guy who persecuted the church. He's like, I'm, I'm not apostles. I'm more like the B-apostles uh, because I'm not, some of you are going to get that later after you have lunch. Um, but th- the point is, he's like, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. So he's like, Where do I see myself on the scale? I'm like the worst apostle. But you know, later on in his ministry, in Ephesians chapter 3, look at what he says. But to me, who am the least, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He starts out and he says, I'm the least of the apostles. But then he says, I'm less than the least Of all the saints, when you look at all of God's people, I am at the very bottom. Why? For the very same issue. But then Paul gets later on towards the end of his life, and he says in verse 15, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I'm the chief of all the sinners. And by the way, I want you to notice he didn't say, I used to be the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. That was his current assessment of who he was. There there is this wonderful thing that happens in your life the longer that you walk with God and, and the, the, the closer that you are to him. And if you've walked with God for a long time, maybe you've experienced, and those of you that haven't, you will at the longer that you walk with him. But you find yourself sinning less and repenting more. What do I mean by that? Because there used to be a time early on where you're like, yeah, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I definitely want to do this. And you're watching the actions. And then the longer that you walk with him, the actions kind of, you, you know, they, they become a habit. And then you start dealing more with what's internal. What's, what was my motive behind what I did? And what was the intent of my heart? What was I thinking when, when I did that? I mean, once again, you know that you're, you're way better off than what you used to be. But compared to the goodness and grace of God, I mean, we're still a mess. Now, I had this, I experienced this recently. Um, my wife, um, about two months ago, was kind of laid out. She was sick, and so I was cooking all the meals. Now, once again, that's not a big deal, and I cook a good amount at, at home, but um, because usually what I do is I just grill, and, um, you know, grilling meat is in my wheelhouse. I mean, my grill probably deserves an Instagram account of its own. I mean, it's pretty good stuff that's getting produced. But my family and I, we've been watching all these cooking shows. And so I was just like, I'm going to just, I'm not going to use the grill. I'm just going to make something. I mean, I watched Chef Ramsay do it. How, if Gordon Ramsay can do it, I can do it. 
And so I just, so I was like, I'm going to make pasta. That's not hard. So I boil the water. My wife's already laughing, so you know where it's going. So, uh, so I boil the pasta. I, uh, I boil the water. I throw the pasta in. I heat the sauce. Um, I tested the pasta. You know, you gotta, that's, what, that's what chefs do. And so, and it's good to go. I pour it out in the colander, and then my wife gets up to get some pasta. And when she goes to scoop it, 90% of the pasta came up in one scoop. And, um, and I'm trying to describe, I didn't take a picture of it because I just don't want the memory. But I, I, to explain what the pasta looked like, have you ever seen what a mop looks like? Like kind of an old style mop where there's, there's the part that's, you know, like that. And then there's this other part that's like totally hard that that's what grips onto the handle. That's what the pasta looked like. Like I picked it up and there was about that much of the pasta that was totally stuck together and it was perfectly straight. And, uh, and I'm like, man, this looks exactly like, like a mop. And so it was, it was unmoving and the other part was wiggly. And anyway, and to make matters worse, my whole family was around the, the, the sink when we were doing this and they were all laughing at me, which is why you wonder why I have low self-esteem. And so, so I had to fix it. And I'm like, oh, I, I can fix that. I haven't seen this on the show. But so I opened the drawer. I got a pair of scissors and I cut it. And I threw that part away. And I'm like, dinner is served. <laughs> Boom, done. And so now I had another problem. And that is my son asked if I could make a mac and cheese. And I'm like, dude, easy. I'm sure I can figure that out. And so I put the, I got pasta, uh, water boiling. I put the pasta in. And then after I drained it, and then I put the pasta back in the bowl, um, I put the cheese in, and for whatever reason, and I think it was just defective, um, the, che- the powder was defective, because the cheese wouldn't mix evenly. What it did was it kept staying in clumps, and so what I was like, oh, hey, I'll be done in a minute, but, and so I was just taking it and just taking a fork and smashing it down and trying to mix it, and every time I did, it just regrouped together, like, like it was the five lions forming Voltron, and so... Anyway, so it just kept coming back. And so, and I'm like, all right, you know what? I poured the thing out with all the clumps. And I'm like, Xander, you know what's better than mac and cheese? And he said, what? I said, bonus mac and cheese. That's why I like to refer to this dish as. And he's like, well, what is bonus mac and cheese? And I'm like, well, because you're going to take a few bites and it's not going to taste like mac and cheese at all. It's just going to taste like dry pasta. And then you're going to see one of these little, those little balls that, look, that are about the size of a peanut M&M. You're going to bite into one of those and cheese is going to explode. And be like, woo! And that's the bonus right there. So just get as many of those as you can. And then we're going to move on. And listen, and, and I don't know why I thought this. A few years ago, um, I w- my wife wasn't feeling well and I was doing all the cooking. And it was so bad that, um, and once again, the kids were younger. Livy was probably like six at the time, maybe five. And um, one day, I... Just, I went and got Chick-fil-A for the kids, and she was so happy, she started to cry. She was like, Dad, thank you. Thank you so much. We don't have to eat your cooking. And so, now, so once again, bonus mac and cheese is a big improvement from where I was, which was making children cry with my cooking. But then the other night, my wife made this lasagna that I am sure is the greatest lasagna in the history. I don't know when humans started eating, but at the time they started eating until now, it was the greatest lasagna since humans started eating food. And we were all, and you can ask my kids, we were all fighting for more. And then there was a little bit left over. And the next night, 
um, we were cooking, and I'm like, you guys eat whatever. You know, the, uh, there was a, a fight ensued over who was going to get the leftover lasagna. And so my son Xander, that's 12, and my daughter Livy, that's nine, they were arguing about who was going to get the leftover lasagna. And so I told Carrie, don't worry about it, I'm going to break it up. And I'm like, guys, there is no reason to argue about this because I'm getting the leftover lasagna, not you. And so then the three of us were arguing about who was getting the lasagna. And I was like, I'm the parent. I make the rules. And you're like, you're the backup parent. So, and so, which is hurtful, but true. And so anyway, so then my wife had to step in the the argument with all three of us. And then we split it into three, totally lame. And so right when I was getting going, it was over. And so, but listen, now here's my point is that you think you're doing well, right? And then you have that lasagna and you're like, my cooking stinks, right? And, this, and that, that's the thing that happens, right? You think you're doing well. The closer you get to God, you realize, yeah, it's not good. This is exactly what happened in the book of Isaiah. If you read the book of Isaiah sometime, the first five chapters, it's this. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Woe to everybody. The judgment of God is coming on all these people. And then in chapter six, you know what it says? It says, right at the beginning, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And you know what Isaiah then says? Woe is me. Because there, he got a vision of who God is. And he realized, I have so far to go. But there's something wonderful that happens in this chapter. And, and when you get to verse 8, it says, the, it says, And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. When Isaiah understood his own brokenness, it was God was able to use him in a mighty way. And my point is this, is that your days being lost are part of your story. And it's part of what God wants to use to be a blessing to other people. Now let me clarify, because I'm not a big fan of people identifying with their past and making their past their identity. You are not who you used to be. And whatever it was that you used to struggle with and whatever label people want to give you, that's not who you used to be. Because once you gave your life to Jesus, that's not who you are anymore. In, in the, somebody wanted to clap. That's a good spot. So that's a good spot. But it's true. It's true. You aren't who you used to be anymore. When you give your life to Jesus, listen, something happened. In fact, in, in Romans chapter uh, 8, Paul would say it this way, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, that's kind of a weird word in the Greek language. It's, it's kind of a mashup of two, uh, two Greek words that don't typically go together. More than conquerors, literally in Greek, means this, super conqueror. And, and, it's, and it doesn't, here's what it means. It means that we won, and it didn't even take everything we had to get the victory. Not we just barely eked by, but we didn't even have to try that hard to get the victory. And listen, there's people that need to know that victory is possible. That not being addicted to something is possible. That freedom is possible. That being happy is possible. That thriving and not just surviving is possible, and it is. And it takes someone who's had victory in their lives in that very same area to show the person who's struggling that victory is possible and that God wants to do the same thing through you. Well, last thing, then we're done. Verse 18. He says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, 
that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Last thing I want to tell you in your notes, and then we're going to draw this to a close, and that is that your fight should bring you peace. You see, Paul's charge to Timothy is that he should wage the good warfare, or as we would say, fight the good fight. And what he's saying is that we need to fight this fight with faith and a good conscience, that we take ground over the kingdom of darkness by obeying our commander, the Lord Jesus. And then he mentions these two guys by name, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he says that both of them have not only shipwrecked their faith, but have shipwrecked the faith of others, that they were infecting other people beyond themselves. Because, and we know that because Paul mentions Hymenaeus again in 2 Timothy. He says it this way. He says, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. The word in Greek there literally is gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. You see, these guys were causing problems in the church, teaching weird stuff, saying that the resurrection of the dead already happened, Jesus already came back. And so Paul, you know what he does? He kicks them out of the church. Now, you might, people might read that, I'm like, wow, that seems a little harsh. I mean, is that what, you know, WWJD, Paul, is that what Jesus would do? Didn't Jesus love, accept, and approve of everyone? And listen, Jesus loved everyone, but he did not approve of everyone's actions. When there's a woman caught in the act of adultery, and, and they're gonna stone her, Jesus gets in the middle of that and prevents that, offers her grace. And you know what he says? He says, hey, you know, just, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. No, that's not what he says. He says, go your way and sin no more. That he's offering grace, but he's giving clear direction as to what's right and what's wrong. And Paul is saying, I delivered delivered them over to Satan. It's in that same spirit of what Jesus would say of go your way and sin no more. Now, what does that mean? I deliver him over to Satan. Here's what that means. It means you're on your own. That there's a protection that comes from being part of a community of believers. When you are connected to a local church family, there is people in your life who will help you, comfort you, challenge you, stand with you when trouble comes in your life. And that's why the the Bible illustrates it this way. Paul does in Ephesians. He calls it the shield of faith. Roman soldiers in that era used a shield that was called a thurios. It was a two and a half foot wide, four and a half foot tall shield. It was basically the size of a door. And it was made of wood and then covered with metal or oiled leather. And it was big enough for a soldier to hide behind. But these shields were also interlocking so that they could form a wall and advance together. And listen, when you are part of God's house, you are protected by other believers that you're linking shields with. But when you're out, you're on your own. And Paul does this not to hurt them, but for the purpose of correction. And that's why he says that he's done this so that they could learn not to blaspheme. And listen, so why would Paul do that? It's tough love. And, and, and it's not because Paul is mad at them. It's because he cares about them and he wants them to wake up to the fact that not only are you destroying yourself, but you're destroying people around you. I'm telling you, I hear people say like, well, I don't think theology or doctrine really matters and I don't care about that. I just love Jesus. I'm I'm sorry, but that just doesn't work. What you believe about God and what you believe that God wants you to do are first and foremost theological ideas. And 
What does thinking that the resurrection already happened, like why does that really matter? That was a belief that was going around in, in that time in, in the early Christian church that the resurrection of Jesus was spiritual and not physical. And the idea was rooted in something that became known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a Greek word. Um, the Greek word gnosko means to know. And so the idea of Gnosticism was that it was like secret knowledge. And only if you had attained a certain level of spirituality could you grab hold of this. And so the idea was that Jesus wasn't really a physical person. He was a spirit. And so they had developed this very strange theology that Jesus was not flesh and blood. That's why when you read the Gospel of John, he keeps saying, hey, touch me. I have flesh and bone. It's, it, it's to combat this idea. And so the Gnostics, because they felt like the flesh was evil, but the, only the spirit was good, the way that they dealt with that was they had split basically into two groups. There, one group was called the Stoics. The other group was called the Epicureans. The Stoics, because they said the flesh was evil, they would literally whip and beat themselves uh, into submission and punish their bodies physically because the... Uh, they said the flesh was evil. The other group with the Epicureans, they said if the flesh doesn't matter, then we can do whatever we want. And, and, and so they just indulged their flesh. And so they said if the spirit only matters, then they got, get it all out of your system. And so they, they were involved in all kinds of perversity and immorality and, and all of that. And so just imagine which group was easier to invite your friends to come to church. And so now, funny enough, the group, historically, they were split about even. And, but what Paul is telling Timothy is, you can't, you can't allow that in the church because what you believe matters because it's going to influence the decisions that you're, you make. And listen, bad theology and wrong beliefs about God lead to shipwreck. It not only shipwrecks your faith and your future and your relationship, listen, it shipwrecks your heart as well. And that's what Paul charges Timothy with and with his congregation with because what you believe about God is like the latitude and the longitude by which you set the course of your life. And so why does Paul want these guys to turn around? I believe because he sees himself in them a little bit. He says that they might learn not to blaspheme because he remembers, hey, I used to be a blasphemer at one time too. And Paul's belief is that if God could save me, then God can save anyone. Now, there's this little piece that I left out when we read earlier because I wanted to bring it here at the end and then we're done. Paul says this, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. That is, when it came to sinning, I was the most extreme example of sin that there was, someone who was as far from God as possible. But in verse 16, it says this. He says, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern of those who are going to believe in him. The word for pattern is this Greek word tupos, which is where we get the English word type. So it's a type, but see, it's, that's not the word. The word is um, hupotupos. It, it's, it's this word hyper type. And that's what he's saying. It's like he's making this juxtaposition from verse 15 to 16. He says, I was the most extreme example of someone who was far from God so that I could be the pattern, the most extreme example of how God can change someone's life when Jesus grabs hold of them. And so, you know what happens when you come to that realization that no one is out of the reach of God's grace? It starts to change how you see people, doesn't it? It starts to change how you see yourself. Because now you know that you aren't stuck because you can't change. That's not the reason. 
We are only stuck because we haven't called on God and invited the Lord Jesus to change us. And here's what it takes. It takes humility. It takes laying down pride. Thinking that you're going to somehow figure it out on your own and saying, you know what? I'm not going to figure it out on my own. I need God's power to transform my life. And listen, this can be your moment. This can be your moment where you say, and and listen, that's true if you aren't a Christian for sure, but it's true if you are. And there's an area where you're struggling where you just say, you know what? I'm not going to just say, oh, I'll kind of figure it out. No, I'm going to invite Jesus and his power to transform me. But today can be the day when you call on God and he starts a work that absolutely changes your life. And it begins the moment that we call on him. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. We thank you that you gave us such a powerful example in the Apostle Paul of a person who can be transformed by your grace. God, we pray for us that we would be those kind of people, but we pray even for those that we love that are far from you, that they would uh, experience this kind of grace as well. And we're trusting, God, that you would do it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.